0: Hello and welcome to General Broadcast, the podcast by the East of England Ambulance Service for the Ambulance Service. Now we have a fantastic interview for you today. Andy Collin is a paramedic with South East Coast Ambulance Service and has done a huge amount of things over his time. He was one of the people leading the charge to get paramedics prescribing rights. He has worked for the Healthcare Safety Investigation Branch and he's also written a book on decision making in paramedicine so what he doesn't know about learning and safety and making the right call is probably not worth knowing. Okay so Andy thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Obviously we just explained in the introduction a little bit about you but could you go into a bit more detail about who you are and why you are just so amazing in every way shape or form?
1: (laughs) Hell that won't take long. Um (laughs) so um wow so i've been in the nhs um for a very long time so i i joined uh, in 1989 uh, pretty much straight from school uh, with the intention of just working as a hospital porter as a summer job to get some money ended up staying for my college place um then noticing ambulances coming and going thought that looks like a good job and long story short I managed to get into the ambulance service in 1994, um, worked my way up through from patient transport onto frontline, did the uh, the IHCD paramedic course in, in 2000, then did what was then known as the ECP, Emergency Care Practitioner course uh, in the sort of mid 2000s, ended up back in the ambulance service, variety of roles, uh, team leader, paramedic practitioner, and then got involved in developing the PP programme parallel to that being quite active in the college and being asked to get involved with the uh, the prescribing and medicines work that NHS England were, were leading, so I ended up becoming the medicines and prescribing project lead for the college and the main thrust of that work culminating in the change in the human medicines regulations in 2018 to allow advanced paramedics to prescribe, so that was really exciting. Yeah, my other sort of big interest is decision making. And I think a lot of people are, are interested in that. So I was very fortunate to get interested in that during my master's programme around 2012, 2013 sort of time. And let me to sort of read up to the point where I was asked if I'd like to put some things down in, in a book. So I was very fortunate that Class Publishing asked me to, to put that together, a bit of a sort of digest really of, of the concepts of decision making. There's a lot that I would cut in and <laughs> more I put in and maybe some things I wouldn't have put in. So um, but it filled the gap at the time. And it, I think it's it's hopefully made people interested in that. And then really on, on the back of that, got interested in uh, in both the staff welfare and patient safety side of incidents. Did a lot of incident investigations in in my trust, and that led me to being asked by the Healthcare Safety Investigation Branch to work with them as a subject matter advisor on one of the investigations they were doing, which in turn led to them saying, Well, you you know, you thought about working for us, and fate happened, and uh, saw an advert come out for a national investigation role, national investigator role, and very surprised to be, to get shortlisted and even more surprised to uh to been given given the job So that's a a bit of a long-winded potted history of uh of me I think
0: but essentially you've done kind of everything kind of everywhere I think it's fair to say you've got your fingers in many pies across the ambulance sector which is which is what really interests me about the the sort of work that you do
1: yeah, I think a lot of it is stitched together, and I'm always aware of the risk of being seen as someone sort of jumping across lily pads or the other analogies of leveled at people who uh, dabble. But I, I've tried to stay fairly true to some of the core interests. Uh, maybe having three main interests is, is too much, but uh, but certainly i, I you know I'm still very interested in, in the medicines and prescribing side of things. The decision-making stuff will always be of interest. And the investigation and safety science stuff is kind of an emerging thing, but it, it stitches across very nicely with really what a lot of stuff paramedics do, certainly within the ambulance sector as well. And if I was to pick The thing that interests me most or concerns me the most is absolutely staff welfare and the role of of leadership and promoting followership that improves people's experience in the workplace, particularly in the high risk setting. The ambulance sector and and a lot of the myths and falsehoods that go along with working uh, often in in the ambulance sector. And it's important to state that the mythology uh, isn't borne out by reality, but some of those Cultural shifts are, are quite diff- difficult to to crack, but I think we can make some really good inroads into that.
0: Well, that kind of leads me really nicely onto the first question. Then, obviously, you've you, you do a lot of work in patient safety. I work in the patient safety department for East of England. If I asked you, what is safe? What is safe working? I know that's an incredibly broad term, but what do, what does that mean to you?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So there, there'll be people that will expect a sort of Health and Safety at Work Act type answer to this, and I'm not. I have no expertise in in that, so I, I won't use safety in that in that in that domain or in that context. I think if we're looking at patient safety and psychological safety, it's about having systems that are well designed, well led, that that make people feel safe and empowered to act. And the outcomes of those actions lead to, to safe care and good outcomes for the patients that we're in and populations that we serve. So, so safety is a lot of things. And I, I think importantly, safety is probably not not the absence of things going wrong. And I think safety is, is a, a continuum of things like reporting, quality improvement, continue, you know, continuous improvement and, and some of those cyclical actions that, that key people in tune with their everyday
0: working life. Yeah, I think that that's, that's always a really interesting conversation that I have. And I've just realised that the birds outside my window are really loud. So if you're he- listening to that on the podcast, I do apologise. But the, the conversation that I have with a lot of people is that they, they expect in their work in the ambulance service to never make a mistake, to, you know, always be perfect. And my argument is that you can never achieve a perfect record. You're never going to be able to do that that something will go wrong in some way shape or form but it's how we learn and adapt from that isn't it that that really is important
1: yeah absolutely and um i think we we spend too much time worrying about things that could go wrong and we should spend a lot more time celebrating things that go well because things do go well an awful lot of the time it is a problem
0: (laughs) (laughs) so on on that then as a quick win how how do you when you're out with people celebrate the the wins rather than the um I don't want to say losses but but the not wins
1: so i think we can't insulate people from the reality i think as you as you sort of touched on the reality is healthcare is is odd you know Working alongside uh, human factors practitioners and and, and certainly engineers and, and air accident investigators, when, when you compare things that can happen to a, a human being, when you compare it to I don't know a Lynx helicopter for instance. So um, I think it was uh, Ken Catchpole's quote that you know machines or aircraft are predictable and deterministic. So, you know, you can, if something happens, you can, you know, if if the wings fall off, you can pretty much guarantee it's going to fall out of the sky. You know, if if you put the wrong fuel in, it's going to make the engine splutter and fail. And the levels of redundancy that are built into that machine, that aircraft will, will allow you to predict, you know, whether or not something going wrong will be catastrophic. Human beings are not as predictable. Or, or deterministic in in that nature. I think a good example with, of that is, and it's, and it's probably no, no secret that the one of the most common drug errors in in our sector is um, adrenaline, one in one thousand. So in terms of of route and dose, but a, a proportion of patients will will respond very very badly to a, a dose of adrenaline at uh, that concentration intravenously. Others others will not respond to it or have any any adverse symptoms at all. So. So, so that, that's the reality. So we have, to, we have to accept that what we do is it can't be perfect because we aren't robots and the people we're looking after are not, are not machines. And then the other thing that I find reassuring or I, I try to use to reassure people is getting people to understand what an error truly is. And often it's, we talk about it as sort of the difference between the sharp end um, and, and the, sort of the blunt end of, of when things happen. And, and the notion of a, sort of a of an emergence event or or a reference or an index event, so um at the point you you push the plunger down uh, and then realize that it was you know oh my goodness i you know that's the wrong route or the wrong the wrong dose or even the wrong drug when we look at systemic safety risks and we when we investigate in, in those terms, the, really the last thing we do is and we certainly don't don't do this at all in, in HSIB we don 't presume incompetence or liability or blame we we look at that event as being the the window into understanding the circumstances that led to that and it's so it's certainly not the singular act of the individual there are lots of ghosts in the machine there are lots of latent errors so things that are designed into into processes that that lead uh, to patients coming to harm and we we often consider the notion of the test of substitution so if you were to to take paramedic A in, I don't know, let's think of a random place, Exeter, um, and replace them with paramedic B from Middlesbrough, would you get the same result? And more often than not, when you analyse the circumstances, you would probably get the same error. There's a very small number of of, of examples in healthcare where someone has been recklessly negligent or has has intended to harm patients. And, And when you just ignore that that tiny, tiny percentage. You have to work on the basis that no one comes to work to do a bad job, and no one comes to work to intentionally harm. So when things go wrong, it, it is often systemic. So that's something that I, I try and instil on people. Yeah, there, there are you are just one part of a, a range of of things. You know, hardware, software, and liveware that, that interact
0: um, uh, to, to give you to give you the outcome. Now that's amazing and that that kind of sums it up really nicely and leads us into the next bit about HSIB. HSIB. I wonder if you can uh, just explain for people who haven't heard of it what what it is, what it's trying to do and the sort of the path that patient safety is or the journey that patient safety is going on at the minute yeah. on some of the stuff that you just mentioned.
1: Yes yeah, so it's, it's a really it's an interesting organisation. We often have to we' often consider ourselves to be the best kept secret in healthcare, so people haven't heard of us often, so we were trying to redress that but we were we went live in april twenty seventeen so i was I was quite late to it so it was well established by the time i I came in but still a very new organization it's got its origins the reason it's called the healthcare safety investigation branch is that it's modeled on the other Branches that people may may or may not have heard of. What the one that everyone will have heard of is the Air Accident Investigation Branch, uh, and in fact, the chief investigator for HSIB is the ex-head of the Air Accident Investigation Branch, and that knowledge that gets that's been brought across from from that sector and the other the other branches as well, which is um, the Rail Accident Investigation Branch and and the Marine Investigation Branch. Marine Accident Branch, and then there's also other other branches. There's sort of the non-civilian, so the, the military investigation stuff as well. So we've got people from from across all the branches working with us, and, and we're absolutely critical in setting up HSIB. So, so we yeah, we follow those sort of safety science methodologies, applying the notion of of sort of the, what we would call the just culture. So uh, you know the a presumption of no blame, no liability, and investigating safety risks. So, so as an organisation, so from a st- structural perspective, so we are funded by the DH, so we are we are NHS NHS funding, and we are currently hosted by NHS EI, NHS England Improvement. Although we are working towards becoming an arms length body, as as are the Air Accident Investigation Branch and, and the other branches. Of course, they they have an, a, an interestingly easier route. For recommendations, in that they have the CAA, is is their main recipient of of things relating to to regulatory safety in aviation. Whereas in healthcare, the best guess is we have around 160 organisations that are directly influential from a regulatory wow. uh, perspective. When you take into account regulators, inspectors, uh, policymakers, they, just the, the health evidence base. So, so that's sort of what we are. So what we do is a, up to 30 investigations a year. We don't replace local SI investigations. And almost always we will come in, when we investigate what we call our reference event, we'll come in and, and our sort of first place to start will be looking at the local trust SI report. Occasionally the that, that one won't have been done because of the nature of, of the way the referral is made. But the, so the, the way we work is we'll receive a referral, generally speaking, from an external body or our internal intelligence unit. So we have a team of, of analysts, clinical fellows who trawl through the databases and, and the health literature and look for themes. And they'll work up those themes uh, as potential investigations. And then the other, so the, the flip side of those are the ones we receive from healthcare professionals, patients, public, uh, people that have concerns, um, either through personal experience or, or within their professional sphere. And we work those up into a proposed investigation for scoping. So there are different phases of, of each investigation. So we, we take, or the intelligence units, sorry, take their proposals to a scrutiny panel. And we decide whether they meet the criteria, so it's a collective decision that's led by our, our executives to see if they meet the criteria and, th- and that is you know it does it have a systemic nature so you know it, or is this a, a sort of weird and wonderful singular event so we that there's a very important that you know, this has to have a systemic nature it's got to have significant impact, and that doesn't mean it has to happen to lots and lots of people so if if the impact is on on one patient or one family. That then that's still valid. but So we'll be looking for the impact. And Sometimes it might be the volume of patient or it might be the, the, um, the significance of the impact. And then there has to be learning. There's got to be the, the potential for learning to come. And, and I, from what I've seen, my experience is a lot of proposals for investigations fall down on, on that. So there are a lot of intractable problems that are well understood. And that we can't add further learning to but if, if all those three criteria are met then we will send an investigation team out to investigate the, the reference event so we will either either be uh, a reference event will either be suggested by let's say the hospital that's made the referral or we will try and identify a reference event through the, the reporting databases and engage with the trust where, where that originated and, and that scoping investigation will be a, a detailed Systemic investigation where we uh, we speak to the, the people involved, uh, you know, the doctors, nurses, therapists, whoever, uh, the patient, their family, uh, and anyone else who's relevant. And then we'll do a, a full analysis based on, a, generally speaking, uh, a published methodology. And then we'll write that into a scoping report. We'll bring that back uh, to the organisation to decide whether this meets the criteria to then go into a full national investigation so are you, are you with me so far?
0: Yes yes, absolutely. I'm just, I'm Excellent. just sort of transfixed because i I imagine that that a lot of staff will what's a polite way of saying this be quite hesitant of this sort of stuff um, absolutely. Yeah. A, again, a lot of the conversations that I have with with people in healthcare in general is that uh, you do something wrong and you get the sack. And that's that's just not the case. It's even even from what I understand in the bad old days, it wasn't uh, simply as easy as as that. But these days as well, with the stuff that you're talking about, it's so much more about the wider system and what the what the system has done to to allow these kind of incidents to take place? I mean, You know, I, I'm sure we could talk for hours about the different kind of models of incidents. You know, Swiss cheese is the one that always comes to mind and, and stuff. But how how do these happen? And it's, it is, like you say, incredibly rare that it's me going out on a vehicle and doing something and it's solely my mistake. It's, well, what happened before then? Who did your training? Did they train you right? What about your refresher course? What about this? What about that what do the what do the policies and guidelines say well the policies in one area say this and they say one in a different area so that's never going to help the situation uh, I'm I'm, def- I'm fascinated by this kind of stuff obviously I work in patient safety it's my it's my day-to-day but trying to trying to get that across to people especially people who have been in the NHS for a number of years is is the hard bit now isn't it
1: yeah, absolutely. It, it should be. Um, we, we try and reassure people by saying to them, it, "It's almost." Um, we we see the people that were involved in our reference events as being the the star players. They are our eyes and ears. They experienced. They they witnessed it. They were there. They were at the controls. Uh, you know, if you were making it analogous to a, a transportation accident, you know, so, so they were there. And when we reassure them that you know there is. There is no there's no jeopardy. I mean, we have to say in in our sort of t- terms of, of, of reference, so to speak, that you know, as as professionals ourselves, if, if we come across something that is clearly akin to Harold Shipman or, or or where you know there was an intent you know to make personal gain or or to cause harm, then of course we, we have a duty. You know, there, there's, we, mm. we we never say that there is um a, the potential for everything is a hundred percent. Blameless. If we find something that is that is contrary to the law or to um, to, to other common sense approaches, but that conversation never happens because we we put people at ease. We we tell them that what they what they've been through can inform national learning and can inform recommendations to the bodies that can affect change which will come full circle and and help them recover because you know, the, the really important point is that and I'm sure most people will be aware you know, will have read something on this that you know that the patient is, is the first victim. But the health worker is the second victim yeah. in a healthcare accident, and particularly people that are coming into or or in a caring profession, they do not want to harm their patients. Absolutely, and they don't want to bring their organisation to disrepute or their profession to disrepute. Um, and so there's there's a huge burden on people that have caused harm or have been at the sharp end when harm has happened. And self blame is as big a problem as organisational blame. And, and so some people do get quite anxious when when we say we'd like to speak to them, and I think particularly because of the word branch, I think we're special branch. I think they expect us to turn up in, in sort of leather grapecoats, uh, <laughs> like sort of uh, the scene from uh, that Tarantino film. But it, it's it's certainly not an interrogation; it's telling the story. But people do get uh, do become anxious because people are, are familiar with either colleagues that have been treated badly, or they're aware of the big examples of, of people like uh, Hadiza Bawagaba. So making sure, you know, putting people at ease is what we have to do. I've personally found, and I think a lot of my investigator colleagues find the same, once you've built that rapport, the floodgates open and people will tell us everything and more. And when you, and you build that safe space and you, and you give them that reassurance that this is about resolution and improvement, not about blame and finger-pointing. Uh, it can, it can, that can be a very uplifting experience for, for us as investigators, and hopefully a restorative experience for the for the members member of staff or, or the multiple members of staff involved.
0: Uh, yeah, definitely. And is it fair to say as well that that is the plan for patient safety investigations going forward? That they're going to model this this idea quite a lot more. Yeah,
1: I think we, I'd like to see that. I mean, the uh, you know it's no secret that there will be some changes to the, the way trusts investigate serious incidents in the future. I don't know what the timeline for that is. And, and because we investigate, I would say that the level's the wrong word cause it makes it sound hierarchical, but we, we we just employ different methods. As much as it's, it's useful to look at um, SI reports, it doesn't change how we approach our investigations, but I'm hoping that the, the way we do what we do can help influence that, those changes in the future, but but even in the short term, helping out. And I, I, can, I can give you an example, it's, you know, not necessarily from, from the ambulance sector, because, you know, so a lot of these examples I give can be from across a range of healthcare, but we often, when we see SI reports, and um, we read them and we look at the action plan at the back, whilst none of them these days ever ever say, you know, we must apply disciplinary action, although I've seen, perhaps, yeah, to be fair, I've seen one or two. But you see these little micro insults, or these little sort of micro injuries. So, you know, asking someone to do a reflective practice, or, you know, suggesting that they don't go back to work until they've been mentored, or, or maybe they should, you know, have a week in the office. Mm. I think some of those behaviours, I think we really need to change. Because they, they are almost little, little punishments, little insults in, in their own right. And it's not as common as it was, but it still crops up. So, you know, even those little things can be really helpful just to think, you know, what what's this going to add? And, and often, you know, someone who has experienced uh, an error or experienced a safety event because of their own drivers and moral code will already have read up exhaustively on the whole background you know, to what they're involved with. So these are people that, that don't need to go back and be retrained. Generally speaking, obviously there's there's always exceptions, but particularly you know professional people. And I don't just mean registrants because you know um, health support workers and people uh, across all, all grades and types of staff across healthcare are professional in their outlook and they always want to learn and always want to improve because we have to remember that no you no know, no one comes to work to do uh, to do a bad job. That sort of influence can pay off.
0: And I think that's the that's the single biggest point that no one you know minus the very few that you mentioned earlier no one comes to work to do a bad job therefore the way that safety investigations are going is with the setup of you didn't come to do a bad job things went wrong let's use you and your expertise because they're the expert now in like you say that incident let's use your expertise and try and make it better for tomorrow there are people that talk about zero harm and, and zero zero patient injury. And again, while I respect that, and this is just my opinion, I do still maintain that I, I don't think that's ever going to be possible in this high risk, high dynamic work. So the, the idea of, you know, working together and making it more accessible and easier to investigate is definitely really exciting, isn't it? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I, I think we should absolutely strive for that. But I think we need to be realistic about ever reaching the goal. I think that the horizon will continue just to, to keep being out of reach, but we need to still keep reaching for the horizon. And just to bring it back to finishing off how we investigated and, and the importance of, of the individual in the reference event, the story they tell largely becomes irrelevant when we then take these investigations to a national level, because then what we're looking to do is to validate and, and compare and contrast the safety risk that we have articulated through the scoping investigation through the reference event and seeing that either happening you know actually occurring or having the potential to occur in three four five six however many trusts we visit we go out nationally and, and, and talk to people about about the reference event and and the great bit for the for the people involved because we, al- we always anyone who's involved in an investigation subject matter advisors. Anyone involved in the reference event, people we interview during the national investigations, they're they're all stakeholders. So they will all get sight of of, of the draft report uh, before it's published, and they'll be able to see how the the recommendations and observations we make develop. And they can know that they are part of of affecting that change. So when we make a, a recommendation to I don't know to Nice or to NHS England or to one of the Royal Colleges, you know that's a very meaningful change but it's based at a national level. So it's not making a, a small local change based on an individual's actions, which may or may not be perceived as an error or to which they're blamed. It's completely, it just goes to another level because the reference event becomes anonymous at that point. So that's, that's an added sort of beauty of, of, of the model that we use. So, so everything's anonymous. You know, we never name the trust, the reference event or the, the trust we visit nationally. We don't identify patients unless they express a wish to use their their real name. So yeah, it's very low jeopardy and hopefully a high gain. And if you, if you compare that to what we've historically done, maybe you know locally within the ambulance sector, but certainly in healthcare, we've taken you know, the people that we think are the star players and we move them as far away from the problem as possible. Mm. Actually, we need to bring them as close as possible to it yes. so they can be instrumental and informative in, in, in the improvement piece because this is the, the other thing we see is we, we have great resource from our human factors and ergonomics practitioners that we uh, either have in the branch or that we bring in under consultancy is the both the poor design in general of, of processes but certainly the lack of end user involvement and i see that in, in the ambulance sector particularly i think we're we're very good at teaching people about how to do the components of care, but we never stitch it together. Um, I was chatting to a a pilot about this. We were just chatting about healthcare and aviation and uh, sighing a little bit about all the the comparisons that are made between the two. But um, he he sort of said, well, we know how to put the landing gear up and down and turn the radar on and operate the radio. But the important thing is we log a flight plan. And he said, what it sounds like, you guys, you, you you never log your flight plan just rely upon being able to do the individual components and, and you use them as and when and I thought that was really interesting and the closest we get to it are the, the things that, that do work well that with high reliability so some of the things like the trauma pathway the stroke pathway you know the, the PCI pathway they work well because they've had lots of end user input generally speaking the end user will be the you know perhaps you know, the cardiology team who are receiving the patient but it's well designed well considered. But a lot of what else goes on hasn't hasn't been well designed, mm. uh, and we see that. And that's not a dig at the ambulance sector because we see examples of this across healthcare. So things, you know, where you know patients are lost to follow up in outpatients, or you know issues with communication with patients at discharge. Yeah, a whole number of things. Yeah, you know, we published reports some time ago about people who transfer between prisons. So people with health problems. Who are on the prison wing of a, a hospital wing of a prison, um, and the issues around medication following the patient. And again, it comes down to the design of the process. Everyone knows how to do their job, but also, oh, I don't know why they do it this way. You know, why don't they? Why don't they ever ask us how? You know, what the best way to achieve this is? So often, and the outcome of our investigations give people that resolution. Mm. And it gives them a voice.
0: I mean, the, the most dangerous words in the English language are: "This is how we've always done it."
1: absolutely absolutely
0: so yeah that's that's the important thing about these investigations it says well have you tried doing something different and gives people that opportunity i mean that's that's fascinating i, I could talk about this with you for hours and hours um but i know you've got to get on and i know that there's some other bits we want to talk about so we've talked about investigations and why it's important to learn from incidents Now, there's a few other bits that you said you were quite interested in. So I want to look at the decision-making process that staff make when they're out on the road. I think it's really important that while we give people the knowledge that, you know, should something go wrong, then there will be support. And I know in East we spent a lot of time working on our support packages for staff. But what I also want to do is make sure that we give people tools that they can use to make better decisions, make better judgments, so that they can learn from that excellence piece. And like you say, share, share that knowledge and good stuff with people. So making decisions in the real world, talk to me about that, because I, I make no secret, I'm not a clinician. I've got a good understanding of it. But in that world, how hard is it to make a, a decision?
1: So I think it's very easy to have a decision happen to you. And I think that's what we saw, certainly when I was being taught about decision making both on my pp course you know uh, many years ago and more latterly on my mark program it led me to to look into this how use experience and intuition to drive what we do so we put a lot of currency in experience i guess it's for the old crew room mantras you know if it looks like a duck and sounds like a duck it's probably a duck and you know that's fine because it probably is what i think people sometimes forget to do is just sense check and like we, like we said about aircraft being predictable and deterministic because you have seen something a thousand times doesn't mean to say the thousand and first is going to follow that same predictable pattern it might and it and it might not and, and and the argument for and against is you know sort of going through this what seems like a very clunky clumsy process of hypothetical deduction so so you know taking a, a list of things that it could be and excluding them one by one can seem. A bit clumsy and often you know pair it to, to watching a, a child take their first steps like anything you do any sort of psychomotor activity you know being clumsy well, well this is pretty similar to that it's going to feel really clumsy and awkward like with anything as you transition from novice to expert your acumen will improve and, and you'll get more and more slick at doing it and it'll probably get to the point where you know you've made an active decision so you know the important thing transitioning from decisions being passive to say no I actively decided that that's what was wrong with that patient or that's what I was going to do with that patient or that's how I was going to communicate that or that's how I was going to doc- document that so it, it can often seem a little bit petty or trite to sort of talk about it in these terms but it, it's quite a, a big difference when you consider that this is why it's important when you consider how fallible the human condition is to external biases. We're not a terribly rational species and our memory and recall systems are not very effective. So our experiences that we think are really sharply remembered are often like a series of Polaroid pictures that are, are stored, moved around your hard drive in your, in your brain, but often maybe stitched together in a different way. So your frame of reference can, can be affected, uh, particularly before you get to that sort of expert level. I and mean, if you talk to a, an ED consultant who's been an ED consultant for 20 years, they don't need to rely quite as much on going through the longhand process but certainly i think at our level and, and often with our, our levels of experience and exposure as well which is obviously really important making sure that you've considered some of those influences you know, some of the, you know, the the biases that yeah, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of them lots and lots of different examples of them but you know things like confirmation bias and availability mm. bias and, and even things like the uh, the impact of hierarchy having having an effect on us did an investigation relating to a patient with sepsis who'd seen seven different health professionals and the ambulance crew, you know, who found out that the GP said it was X before just thought, well, I'm not going to question the GP. And, and that, is, that is one of those effects in action. Mm. So make your own independent decision and be able to, to defend it. And it's an important word, defend, because there's a difference between uh, having what you do be defensible so it's the right thing to do, and you can defend your actions to being defensive. And that's not helpful because you'll end up over-treating people, taking people to hospital that need to go to hospital in the perceived view that you're going to avoid any personal risk. But of course, that's quite unethical, using the patient as a means to an end. And that then being your own sense of, of personal safety, the system should wrap around and give you that sense of personal safety. Mm. Sorry for the waffle, by the way no That's no no, a long, no don 't answer
0: to a short question don 't you dare apologize at all that 's fantastic because it's again it 's interesting talking to some of our more experienced colleagues. They used to say that in the old days they would take everyone in because then, you know, they were in hospital and if anything happened, they were in hospital and that was the best place for them to be. But obviously we can't be doing that all the time. So it is definitely a challenge, isn't it? You know, it's five o'clock in the morning on a seven till seven night shift. You come across someone and you're not quite sure what to do. You're being advised that the hospital is really busy, but you're also not sure whether this person should go in or stay at home, there's some really difficult decisions that crews have to make all the time, aren't there?
1: It's. I'd rather people got it wrong the right way than get it right the wrong way. Because no one's job description says you must be perfect and you must get it right every time. Because yeah. that, that isn't possible. You know, yeah. your, your job description requires you to be competent and to work within the limits of your authority. But again, it comes back to Nature of, of healthcare and the predictability and deterministic nature of, of how people present. You know, atypically, uh, patients who are unable to articulate their history or give their symptoms, describe their symptoms, it, it's quite difficult to do this. And the difference between a set of circumstances describing or presenting sinister pathology with something that could be relatively benign or self limiting can be the interpretation of a uh, of an observation or the way a symptom is described. So it's really, really hard. But if you've gone through a process that you can defend, essentially it's using differential diagnoses. So thinking about what is wrong with your patient, thinking about what's right with your patient, thinking about what it could be and what it couldn't be, what you can rule in and what you can rule out, but also celebrating the patients who self-differentiate. And often I think we've, over the years, as, as things have become much more complex, our diagnostic acumen hasn't kept pace with that. So we, we would go to people with, you know, a facial droop and and go, well, that's probably a stroke. And you put them in the ambulance and take them to hospital. That's fairly easy. You know, so an older person who falls and their legs rotated and shortened, well, that's fairly straightforward. You know, people who are pale and clammy with chest pain, well, that's fairly straightforward. But people that have got exacerbations of of long-term problems where you need to stratify how severe that exacerbation is, where you pitch them, whether they need to be admitted or whether they can be treated safely in the community. That's really, really hard to do. And that's why it's important not to just make an intuitive judgment, but to dig in and satisfy yourself that the decision you've made can be defended. The worst thing you want to hear when you're undertaking an investigation is, well, I don't really know why I did that.
0: Well, so in in that, life that, in general, important. isn't it? But of course, it's... that has to be
1: framed in the system you work in. So this is coming back to my experience as a safety investigator. The system has to have enough resilience in it that you can, you know, you can easily access, you know, another pair of eyes or or another opinion. That you have access to you know, to information that's accurate, and then all the human factor stuff. You know, is your work intensity correct you know are you fatigued working in the wrong light conditions you know what's the how's the communication between the crew and the patient there's a whole lot of stuff going on that can lead to errors but the the decision making the pure decision making side of things may sound complex but it's again it's just shifting from letting things happen to you to feeling satisfied that you've made an active decision or you've been through an active process and that the outcome is, is defendable, mindful. defendable, that you're not going to get it right every time. You might be lucky to get it right half the time. It's just making sure that you always fail small. That it doesn't fail big.
0: Mm, definitely. And it's I think it's important as well to talk about you know sometimes like you say you have the luxury of time with making a decision. You know obviously we know about the the demand on on resources. But there are times definitely where you need to walk in a room and make a decision and I'll get shouted out for saying this, but apply some diesel and, and get the patient to hospital, don't you?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. Obviously, I, I, I'm not reflecting the views of my employer or, or yours, but the thing I, I struggle with is twofold. So I think it's waiting around on scene where you've got obvious pathology that needs hospital attention. And the perception is, no, I must complete task A, B, C and D, otherwise I'll get into trouble. If someone's got an obvious unequivocal need to go to hospital, be admitted, have an operation, go through rehabilitation, we can't criticise people for that. And the other it's a slightly different coin, might be the other side of the same coin, is people with very low acuity or low severity problems that still need hospital or, or another facility you know so a, a twisted ankle for instance and yet we sometimes see colleagues spending huge amounts of time on scene almost clarking that patient and again you ask why a, a young fit person who can't wait bear on a on a twisted ankle and i've heard several times people coming back and saying yeah but what if i miss something mm so i think we've got to get a little bit more realistic about Dealing with people's chief complaint and understanding the difference between surveillance of a population, which we are not commissioned to do, we're not funded to screen every patient that calls nine 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 for any condition, and compare that to what can be quite a joyful experience of making a serendipitous diagnosis. So coming across something that you can spot without going looking for it, something something that presents itself to you. So maybe you notice that the patient's got a concerning mole on their body that you point out and you may have spotted a a skin cancer, for instance. But you're not required to map everyone's entire integumentary system on every patient you go to. So that's a personal view. There's a big issue, again, when you link in the human factors, the resource consumption, and, and the sheer amount of stress it puts on individuals thinking that if they don't screen someone and they miss something... Because when we have seen complaint letters, the patient calls 999 for a stub toe and two weeks later they have a heart attack and they complain to the ambulance service that you didn't spot this when you came out to, to my husband with his stub toe. Those are the, the slightly more I'd say, ludicrous because patients have every right to, to, to air their concerns. We are bound to investigate, but we can explain those and people shouldn't be fearful of complaints such as that because the system can provide back the feedback to them. To the complaint in a reasonable way. But again, like we said right at the very start, you know we are riddled with folklore and mythology that complaints lead to disciplinaries and disciplinaries lead to people being fired and struck off and, and all those awful things. And, and the reality really does not compare to the perception.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm aware of time and I know that you are a busy man and have many things to do. So I'll start wrapping up slightly. I'm going to ask you for the impossible. I'm going to ask you for your top tips on decision making in those environments and situations. If you could give someone three or four tips or bits of advice, what would they be?
1: So celebrate your experience and celebrate your intuition, because they will guide the things that you can use to help deduce the problem. But don't rely on it. And like I said about making a a passive rather than an active decision. The most important thing is, is just enjoy Learn to enjoy the job, you know. Learn that that you can ask people. I think the culture has changed hugely, and I think this notion of of complete self sufficiency and autonomy is is the mark of a good paramedic or, or a good ambulance clinician. Picking up the phone and, and asking for a second opinion is is not a problem. It, it, it demonstrates insight into one's own ability. So um, celebrate the opportunity to learn by by sharing decisions look at all opportunities to clear out you know, or to clear space and broaden your cognitive bandwidth you're much more likely to make an error if you're distracted and there's quite difficult philosophical issues you know we've got with you know people's work intensity how long we spend on scene how how far vehicles are travelling you know the whole sort of task cycle or job cycle time and how by improving how we do things and I'm not talking about you know for the sake of a spreadsheet shortening our on-scene time there are some patients that we will need to be on scene with for a long time you know some some sort of mental health presentations end-of-life care but for the most part where the decision is fairly straightforward I think we can we can free up time that in turn will reduce levels of fatigue and frustration and and that will, will help clear your bandwidth and then having trust in leadership and making sure that you demand professional leadership and you, and you get the support that you need. And I just say it's not rocket science. You know, making a good decision is fairly straightforward. There are some theoretical bits, and you can, a bit like reading ECGs, you can you can read as much in, into it as you want. You can become as much of an expert as you want. But there are probably two or three principles that will really help you declutter. You, know, you need to leave your decisions behind. Uh, you don't want things staying with you for a bank holiday weekend thinking, oh, my goodness, I left that patient at home gosh i hope i don't have that email when i get back to work on tuesday
0: on um, that I, I was reading your book because i'm a good host and i did my research you talk about the garden path or the garden, the garden gate garden path test. test yes yes can you sum that up for us
1: yeah that's really simple that's and that was a personal experience it was it was the sort of the, the whole garden path thing if you sort of gets end of the garden path and you're already thinking oh crap was that the right thing to do I made the right decision you know should i should I send that patient in? Should I have spoken to the GP? You probably made the wrong decision, even if it's the right decision for you it's the wrong decision because you can't you haven't parked it, you haven't resolved fully the case, yeah you know, you've got to be able to get back in your vehicle and go, yep, yeah, job done, and even if heaven forbid you were wrong or the patient deteriorated in an unexpected way, you've made a, a an active decision. You've practiced it in a, in a way that is defensible, that is safe, that respects the patient's wishes, and has, and has kept them as safe as possible. Then you can drive off and see your next patient with a clear head.
0: Uh, that's fantastic. Andy, we're going to wrap up there, but just a bit of a plug if anyone did want to learn more about decision making in paramedicine, but obviously you don't have to be a paramedic to read the book what's the name of your book and where can they get it from uh,
1: decision making in paramedic practice is published by class publishing
0: and you can get it from pretty much anywhere pretty
1: much anywhere absolutely
0: i think we can sum sum this all up by saying that if if ever you're not sure of anything ask someone because that's that's the only way that we learn and we all learn together and that's that's how we're going to get through all of this isn't it Absolutely. Andy, I'll leave it there, but thank you so much for your time. I I hugely appreciate it. Thank you very much, and you? Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. Take care, and I'll speak to you all soon.